On behalf of my colleague Matt Lehman Weens and I, I'd like to offer you our sincere thanks for the privilege of being able to join you in worship today. Just so that you know who Matt is, I'll ask him to stand so you will recognize him. Matt is our Director of Donor Relations um, and works out of the Newton, Kansas office. I'm also very grateful for the opportunity to be with you uh, to be able again to express to you the sincere gratitude of Mennonite Mission Network for your generosity toward God's mission. We are very grateful for the, the prayers and the people and the resources that uh, East Chestnut Street has shared uh, for the work of uh, bringing healing and hope around the world. <clears throat> We're grateful for your financial sharing in 2014, East Chestnut Street contributed $26,090 for God's mission through Mission Network. In 2015, you contributed $19,035. And then the last fiscal year, you contributed $22,482. I want to say to each of you who uh, shared generously, we deeply appreciate your sharing with God's mission. You also have shared uh, through your partnership um, in the support of uh, Gary and Ruth Denlinger, and Mark and Mary Hurst. We appreciate very much that uh, commitment that you have made and the ways that you have kept faith with that commitment. Many um, volunteers have also come from this congregation, and some of these are more uh, dated than others, but let me just recognize uh, we've had Mennonite Voluntary Service participants, um, Jason Rutt and Daniel Adams, and then a large roster of persons who've served through the SOUP program. Um, and we want to recognize and thank them. Uh, <clears throat> Glenn Roth. Uh, Connie, who served with her husband, Harold, no longer with us. Annabelle Ruth, Betty Fry, Lois Hess, Ernest Hess, Roland Yoda, Dorothy Yoda, Dwight Hirschberger, Edna Hirschberger, Roger Ledyard, Rosalind Ledyard, Holly Cooker, and Kate, M. Kate Cooker. That's a veritable list of people who, from this congregation, have been blessed and encouraged in their work of serving in 
many places across uh, the U.S. and and also around the world. So we want to honor and celebrate the spirit of uh, sharing with the world uh, from the blessings that God has given to this congregation. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for this privilege of being partnered with you in God's mission around the world. Um, Just a word of explanation about the bulletins. Uh, You see in the bulletin uh, two pictures there. Being technologically challenged, it's my way of getting my Facebook fixed and face Facebook fixed by putting pictures in bulletins because I can put them online. No, I was really just wanting to uh, show you my hairdo that uh, even, even I'm impressed when I look at it. <laughs> we'll come to that later. And Jesus said, peace be with you. Jesus came that day to the place where the disciples were gathered. And the disciples were shuttered behind closed doors, the text says, because of great fear. The disciples were stunned and sobered and scared by what they had experienced in the days that led up to and included the crucifixion of Jesus. And they understood that they were suspects targeted for potential elimination or possible brutalization because of their association with this rabble-rouser. And when Jesus comes and stands among them and says, peace be with you, he's not offering them mere reassurance. He's not trying to communicate don't be afraid, I'm not a ghost, uh, because they likely would have been overcome with terror having witnessed Jesus' death on the cross and seeing him uh, in, before them, they might have been terrified. So Jesus is, I believe, not merely offering reassurance. Neither is Jesus offering the comfort, the solace of being, the solace that they needed in the face of persecution and grief and loss. When Jesus stands among them and says, peace be with you, I believe that he is suggesting to them the promise of new possibilities as a result of his death and resurrection. Jesus is announcing that in his resurrection, a whole new world has been born. 
in this new world that Jesus ushered in through his resurrection, the principalities and the powers have been vanquished. Jesus is announcing to to them that in a world where people have been damaged and diminished and degraded by evil and sin, there is a new world in which they can begin to live life to in its fullness without the fear of, of death and disease and destruction. The forces of death have been overcome. And so this word of Jesus to them, peace be with you, is a word of hope that their world is no longer circumscribed by the realities of the violence and the brutality that they had witnessed, that some new reality has been unleashed, a reality that overcomes death and destruction. And after Jesus says to them, peace be with you, John records He breathes upon them. To me, this uh, reference is reminiscent to Genesis 2 and verse 7, where after God uh, forms humanity from the dust, the text says he breathes into uh, their nostrils and they become living beings. It's the uh, primordial act of creation, the first creation. But when Jesus breathes on them post-resurrection in the upper room, it's a recreation. They are being recreated for the new reality that has been unleashed in our world. It's also reminiscent of Ezekiel 37 and verse 9, where uh, God brings the prophet to this valley, and in the valley there are dry bones everywhere, signs of uh, death and, and destruction. And God says to the prophet, can these bones live? And then God instructs him to prophesy the breath of God upon these bones and the bones are joined to each other and flesh comes upon them and new life emerges. And I think the suggestion by John in this text is that new life is possible, that we are enabled by the death and resurrection of Jesus to experience a new reality that uh, brings life to um, the desolation that we might have uh, experienced in our lives. And then Jesus goes on after having breathed upon them in this act of recreation. He says to them, As the Father hath sent me, even so I am sending you. 
I believe in these six words, as the Father hath sent me, uh, there is kernel of, of instruction that we too frequently miss. I believe that these words require us to read Jesus in historical context. The danger in much of our Western uh, religious tradition is that we have reduced Jesus to a transactional moment on the cross that secures our eternal salvation. Um, You know the history of fundamentalism in North America that reduced the gospel to these four key truths. So that if you could recite, I am a sinner and I invite Jesus Christ into my life, you can uh, speak the reassurance that you're going to heaven, that you're going to inherit eternity. In the Western religious tradition, we have reduced the gospel to this, these four spiritual laws, to a transactional event that happens on the cross. And it's that kind of reductionism that allows for Jesus to be claimed as a tribal avatar, as a figure who can be used to justify the racism that we saw in Charlottesville. Charlottesville is as far from Golgotha as we ever can imagine. Because when Jesus says, as the Father hath sent me, he is harking back to the charter with which he begins his ministry. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, the Bible records that Jesus came to a synagogue in Nazareth, not too far from where you folks probably lived. Um... And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives, and to announce God's good favor to all people, without exception. My addition, but that's the sense of the text. God's good favor to all people everywhere. If we read Jesus in the historical context, the cross becomes not a transactional event to secure our personal eternal salvation. The cross becomes the witness to a new reality that God is birthing in the in the course of restoring humanity and creation to God's good purposes, the cross becomes the consequence of the introduction of that new reality that subverts and undermines all of the systems and the patterns and the traditions that we have created for ourselves. And so when Jesus says, as the Father hath sent me, 
It requires that we take into account everything that Jesus uh, witnessed to. When he left that synagogue in Nazareth, he went to the surrounding villages and countryside towns, and he embraced the poor. He loved the unlovely. He touched the untouchables. He extended welcome to those who were outsiders. He consorted with Samaritans and publicans and those who were the despised and rejected of his time. Jesus says, even as you witnessed me engaging in uh, announcing God's good news to, to the world through uh, the acts that I performed, even so I am sending you. Many of us may have sufficient grasp of the moment of Christological climax that is witnessed in this chapter uh, in John 20. Among them stands the risen Lord, the Lord who has conquered uh, death and hell. And it is a moment of supreme Christological meaning. But I think we also fail to apprehend that it is a moment of apostolic significance because it is precisely the risen Lord who has overcome sin and death who says to them, and now I am sending you. It is about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the um, one who died as a criminal on the cross, to be the Lord of the universe. But it is also a moment in which that very Lord is saying to you and, and me, to the disciples, and now because of what you witnessed in and through me, and because of the cataclysmic event of the resurrection, you are now being sent to bear witness to this. <clears throat> the invitation of Jesus is one to engagement with a broken and a hurting world. The, the large polling uh, outfits like Gallup and Pew and Bonner often commenting on the status of the uh, Christian reality have responded to the question, how do we know uh, how many Christians there are in the United States? And the way that they answer that question is, how many are going to church? And sometimes we justify uh, uh, that we're Christian by how many times we come to church. But what Jesus is suggesting here is that what makes us Christian is not coming to church but going to the world, that that's what makes us Christian, by engaging with the reality that God seeks to transform and invest with the newness 
of the creation that is being restored. So Jesus calls us to an engagement with a hurting and broken world. We can choose to, like the disciples, to lock ourselves behind closed doors. We can choose to retreat to the safety and the, of, of our sanctuaries and to huddle with the holy. Or we can choose to engage with the world, even as Jesus modeled for us through his life and ministry. And so this text begins with fear, with running away, with hiding. But it ends with engagement. Between those two moments is the comfort or consolation that Jesus offers them, that sin and death have been overcome, that a new world has been born, and he recreates them for participation in this new world uh, that is being brought into being through uh, the kingdom of God. And then he commissions them. And then there's a final act. Jesus capacitates them. Nancy promised me that she looked it up, and it is actually a word to capacitate. I, um, in my speaking in Latin America with translation, I have often heard the word that I spoke equipped being translated into Spanish as capacidad. But I like that word too, to capacitate, to give us the capacity for what we are called to be and to do because we in our, in our own uh, selves lack that capacity. The Bible records in, in John 1 that when Jesus was uh, ready to begin his ministry, he, he went down to the Jordan and as he stood in the waters, uh, Awaiting baptism, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came upon him. And the words were spoken, my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. But Jesus needed to be capacitated for the work to which uh, God had called him. And then as we observed in Luke 4, uh, verses 16 following, it says... Jesus said, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And we recognize, or hopefully we recognize, that the work to which we're called to set at liberty captives, to uh, uh, embrace the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted is often work that stretches us beyond our own uh, human capacity, that we need the Spirit of God to empower us for the work to which 
uh, God calls us. The disciples uh, gathered behind these closed doors, terrified and afraid. But you know that uh, uh, in, in the uh, book of Acts, at the beginning of the story, it says, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came, and the same disciples who were fearful and terrified, who actually denied any association or knowledge even of Jesus, become those who stand before great multitudes and announce to them, this Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord of heaven and earth. And they're willing to be imprisoned and even to die because of the spirit that has empowered, equipped, and capacitated them for the task of their witness in the world. We live in troubling times. And there is plenty reason why we will be made afraid. But Jesus calls us not to run away and hide. Jesus calls us to engagement. In the spirit of a people of peace, to engage the world with the hope of the transformation of our reality so that God's purposes for healing and hope will prevail. And now to the pictures. In the picture you see myself and our uh, director for service adventure, Susan Nisley. Susan and I had gone to Anchorage, Alaska, where we have a service adventure unit to uh, visit with the participants there. And on the day when this picture was taken, we were invited to accompany one of our uh, volunteers to one of the assignments that she had at a soup kitchen in downtown Anchorage, Alaska. About uh, 200 to 250 people are served lunch every day at this uh, facility. And we went uh, early and uh, we were given head coverings and aprons and uh, we prepared the, the food that would be served at lunchtime. And <clears throat> as we were doing this, uh, our volunteer, Mar Mariah Denlinger, was doing things and reading uh, things for the arrival of the guests. And I noticed that the uh, executive director who runs that facility was hovering nearby. And then she finally came up to Susan and I, and she said, you know, one of the saddest things for us is that Mariah will be leaving in two months. She said, is there any way that you can clone her? And um, we said, sorry, we <laughs> wish we had that power. But she then went on to explain the um, commitment and the compassion and the care that Mariah was able to, to show the guests. 
She left and we served the meals to the 200 or 250 people. And then when we were done serving, we went and found tables with some of the guests, sat down and ate with them. After Mariah was done, she joined us. And when she came and sat down with us at the table with some of the guests, I could observe the light in the eyes of these guests turn on. They were suddenly filled with delight at Mariah's presence. And then they proceeded in her company to tell us about how Mariah uh, embraced them as people and conferred love and dignity, uh, invested love in the, into their lives, and how much it meant to them to uh, know and to associate with Mariah. Um, Mariah... Uh, came directly from high school. I don't think she understood what it would take. But she was working with people who on cold anchorage nights when there are no bathrooms and it's easier just to go under the blankets, uh, came to that facility smelling really bad. Um, Many of them were unkempt because they had no mirrors or places to um, tend themselves. Many of them were in uh, desperate situations. Mariah looked beyond all of that and embraced them and shared love and compassion with them that dignified them as human beings. And you could see that it did something to ennoble them, even in the condition that they found themselves. There was something in their humanity that was hailed, and they responded with delight and with joy. Mariah understood what it meant to engage the world with the capacity that is given by God through the Spirit of God. All around the world, in 52 countries, we are working hard to deploy women and men and children, also here across the cities of the United States, to be those who will hail the humanity of those whom they meet and invest in them God's love and their care and compassion so that this new world that God is birthing, has been birthing since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, will become a reality. I pray for each of us tomorrow and in the week ahead that we will engage the world that sometimes we simply walk past and invest the humanity and share the love of God in Jesus Christ. God bless you and thank you for the work that you do to make this vision a reality.